Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, based on the 1938 novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, and Keith David. And in this film, a research team in Antarctica encounters an alien that can take over other life forms and assimilate their appearance. This is a request for many people. I cannot unfortunately remember everyone who requested this movie. Um, But most recently, my high school friend Mike requested it. And I think my high school friend Matt has requested it as well. So for everyone else who requested it, uh, sorry, I don't remember your names. It's also beloved by a lot of our friends on our Discord server. So we figured... We'd better get around to it, uh, as it's commonly referred to as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And Ashwin, you have seen this before, right? (laughs) We we talked about this before, actually, before we were recording a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, What what do do you think? It's been like four or five years since we saw it originally? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it was good to revisit. Um, Mm -hmm. By the way, if you're new to the show, we're going to talk some spoiler-free info for 15 or 20 minutes, and after that, we'll do a little musical transition, and that's when you know it's time to get out of here if you haven't seen the movie yet, because we're going to walk through the plot, the pot and the plot, and do a bunch of spoilers and then review the film. Um, This movie had a budget of $15 million and a box office of only $19.6 million, did not perform that great, and it didn't get reviewed very well at the time. I know. It's so interesting that this was, like, so slammed when it came out, and, like, now it's, like, regarded as, like, one of the best films. Yeah, it's really done a 180 because, yeah, it's often mentioned as one of the best horror films. It has the top, stop, like, top 10 spot on every list, and yeah, it's wild how everything changed so much. You know, have you seen that phenomenon uh, with other movies or works of art where, like, when they come out, they're just, like, panned by critics and, like, totally underappreciated, and then years go by and suddenly, like, there's this change in in, uh, the reception of things? Like, did you recall any other horror films that fall into that category? I can't recall. I mean, I know we've discussed that same phenomenon before on this podcast, but I can't recall the specific movies. Yeah. I wonder why that happens. I know. I know. It is really interesting. Um, like too ahead of a movie is too ahead of its time, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I I, I felt like a, a lot of the excuses for this one. They were talking about like the economy, um, the the sentiment in the U.S., the positivity of, around like people wanting to see like uh, things that are more upbeat or something. Did, didn't E.T. come out in the same year? Yeah, yeah. So I saw that used as a reason. Like, hey, E.T. was just this fun, heartwarming, uplifting alien movie, and now you're giving us this nihilistic one. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I I could totally see this movie being a downer in the in the yeah. theater in 1982. Yeah, uh, and Carpenter took the uh, took it really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said it. It really not only did he emotionally take it hard, but he it hurt his career. Oh um, yeah, right. He had a multi film deal with Universal, and after this, they they bought him out of it. He lost his gig directing 1984's Firestarter. So it really had an echo effect. It did, but I mean, he still went on to do like so many films and like big ones too. So I, I, I feel like it was, I, I don't know, like it pretty short lived the the impact on his career. I think it would have, I think he would have had even bigger films. Um, and a lot of his films may not have been huge at the time. We still have to review quite a bit more of his movies. Um, they're cult classics, but they're not i'm sure there were some big name blockbuster things he he might have had had the thing been as successful as it is now in terms of its belovedness and its positive retroactively positive reviews and how many people have seen it oh, and sure. how much money has probably been spent on the back end on it too sure yeah yeah you may be right whole new a uh, whole different kind of career trajectory potentially yeah yeah, but as of today, it's got an 86% critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 92% users. Hey, you weren't able to find, like, I know they didn't have Rotten Tomatoes back then, but there's no type of, like, measure that we can uh, cite from, like, what, what like, it received in 1982? 
That's a good question. I wonder if there was any sort of re- review aggregator. <laughs> review. Oh, shit, I cannot say that. You got it. <laughs> a thing that accumulated reviews in 1982. I wonder about that. But yeah. yeah, I mean, you don't have to look hard to find numerous examples of pretty scathing reviews from prominent critics at the time. Right, right. Yep. Um, Roger Ebert was one who notably didn't like it, although he didn't rip into it as bad as others did. He just didn't really like it all that much. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. Uh, and this is only the third Carpenter film we've covered, man. We've, we've got to catch up. What were the other two? Halloween and Halloween 2? Halloween, Halloween and They Live. Halloween 2, he did not direct, but oh. he co-wrote that with Deborah Hill. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and They Live, I don't think we did that on the podcast, did we? We did. It was episode 16. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. I Like the year after this, he released Christine, which I, I feel like a lot of people have mentioned as a good film to check out. Yeah, we should check that one out. And uh, we should also review two other films of his that he includes with the thing as part of what he calls his apocalypse trilogy. Mm-hmm. And that is Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And actually, Whitney has requested us to do In the Mouth of Madness, so we'll definitely have to do that one. Oh, cool. All right. That sounds good. So they all kind of follow a a similar storyline or similar characters? I guess. I would say they have similar concepts. I think they're very loosely connected. Okay. Okay, cool. There was nothing in the marketing. I don't think it's widely known that those are considered part of a group. I think it's mostly Carpenter who sure. considers it part of a group. I may be wrong. Maybe the Phantom is like, no, hey, we're Carpenter fans and we're calling it the Apocalypse Trilogy. But yeah. I don't often hear that mentioned as a trilogy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd be really interested to see those. Yeah, I've seen them, but uh, it would be interesting to watch them with you and review them. Sure, sure. Yeah, I feel like some of his other well-known ones are like The Fog have you seen that one? I've seen The Fog. Have you? I haven't. Uh, Escape from New York. Have you seen that one? Yep. Good? Um, Just okay. I mean, so many people love it, but uh, yeah. just okay to me. And that, that's more like action, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like a sci-fi dystopian action type film. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of his filmography spills into, like Assault on Precinct 13, I think, is uh, also more heavily action. Yeah, he does spill into like sci-fi. A lot of his work's sci-fi and action, and and there's a good chunk of horror as well. Yeah. But he's a director where I feel in order for us to keep cranking up this noob nerd speedometer scale, to get closer to nerd, we've really got to get a lot of Carpenter films yeah. in the can. Yeah, that's true. I think. <laughs> Whether we review them or do them as, as extra credit on our own time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's he's like a big enough name that you got to know this guy and watch his work. Yeah, we, we cannot claim to be anything near noobs until we see a lot more of his movies and cover quite a few more, I think, too. Yeah. Well, part of me wonders, like, so this movie comes out, it gets slammed, and then I don't know how many years go by before it, gets, it starts to get be more appreciated. Does it have to do with Carpenter and his follow-on films and people realizing that no, maybe there's something more to this guy and now let's go back and appreciate his older work more? That's a good question because as you start to watch more of his films and you're like, hey, you know, I like a lot of Carpenter's work, then yeah, of course you'd be likely to go back and re-examine the thing and then you might start to retroactively appreciate it more and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or even maybe it's just that the thing really had elements in it that lent itself that lent the movie to rewatches and kind of gazing at an amazement on VHS, right? Because you could really mm-hmm. watch these practical effects and watch them over and over again. Sure. Because um, that's something we haven't mentioned yet. Not only is this regarded as one of the best horror movies of all time, but it's regarded as some of the best practical effects ever to be put on film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like 10% of the budget would just spend on practical effects. Yeah, I was amazed. I, I, I guess not totally amazed once you see the results on screen, but I was surprised to see the number. 1.5 million of the $15 million budget was spent on creature effects. Right, right. That's crazy. Yeah, Rob Bottin was the guy who did the the 
creature effects for this. I'm pretty sure he was 21 when he did this movie. I need oh to verify God. that, but I thought I read that somewhere. That makes sense. Like, I mean, I read some stories about the amount of time he put into it. And so, yeah, if you're in your early 20s, that kind of makes sense then. Yeah, it sounded like he was really uh, working himself like a dog for this. Right, right. And he's worked on The Fog, RoboCop, Total Recall, Seven, Fight Club, The Howling, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian Wade was on the special effects team for this, too. We just talked about him in the Jason Lives episode. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, special yeah. special effects play a huge role in this film. They're definitely kind of front and front and center. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the VHS release of this film really helped it to start to gain a following. And I think it seems like by the end of the 90s, it was starting to be regarded as a really good film and things were starting to turn around. I, I don't know exactly when it it really officially turned around for the thing, but I'm guessing it was a slow process throughout the 80s and 90s. Sure, that makes sense. You yeah. ever uh, you ever see like that happen with like albums on like Pitchfork and stuff where they'll go back and switch their review? And like, what are your thoughts when that happens? Hmm, I don't know. I mean, my thoughts on that happening when Pitchfork does it are probably pretty different than when it happens naturally <laughs> because Pitchfork can be pretty eye-rolling and yeah. it's uh, better, holier-than-thou hipsterdom, but sure. it's it confounds me. I don't really know what it is that makes us not appreciate something the first time through and then our appreciation of it grows over time. Yeah, over like 10, 15 Any ideas? Years. Um, well, for, it, it kind of irritates me. Like, I, I feel like if you're going to make a, a review and a rating, uh, you, you should stick with it. So it kind of uh, bothers me when, like, publications or uh, critics will, like, change their mind on something so drastically in the future. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of it probably has to do with appreciating the artist more or, like, uh, yeah, maybe in this one I think maybe it is more around, like, what you said, like, appreciating the effects and the, the work that went into this and realizing how it fit within the context of what was going on in 1982, potentially. Right. So there's some value right. there. Yeah. The score here was done by Ennio Morricone, who's created more than 400 scores for movies and TV. Wow. From A Fistful of Dollars in the 60s to The Hateful Eight in 2015, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Original Score. Mm-hmm. Um, it does sound like Carpenter and his... Uh, musical partner Alan Howarth did record a bit of music that also appears in the film, but I think most of what you hear is Morricone's score. Yeah, I, and that's one of the things I love about Carpenter. Like his music is so great. Uh, like some of his solo stuff. Yeah, it is. It's really intriguing, and he, I can't remember if I already said this, but he scores most of his films, but just a handful that that he did not do himself, and this mm-hmm. is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did see, did, did you, uh, see this though, that like, uh, even though he didn't do the score on this one, it sounds like the score that was made is something, it's, it's like kind of in a similar vein to Carpenter's musical stylings. Yeah. I think he, Ennio Morricone, I think did a little bit of synthy type stuff thinking, okay, this is what Carpenter does. He'll hopefully dig some of this. Mm, yeah, I think so. Right, that right. was the impression I got. And I don't think he knew that Carpenter was going to end up slipping some of his own music in there as well. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Russell's in this. He also worked with Carpenter on Elvis, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, and Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those Escape from movies, he played a character named Sleek, Snake Plissken. I remember seeing Escape from L.A. in the theaters as a kid, and I loved it. Oh, man. I was wanting to see that. That looks really cool. It's like real cheesy and over the top. It, it is. That would be fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not a horror film, though, is it? Or is, is it kind of that sci-fi no. horror? Oh, okay. No, like an action, dystopian sci-fi action type thing. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I loved his beard. That was, that was a good one. Oh, man. He is a handsome man in this movie. I know. <laughs> Never realized. Yeah, yeah. You know, so is Keith David. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And this was Keith David's first film? Yeah, it was. I think he had worked in theater before this, but this was his first, I, th- I think I read first major film. I can't remember if it was first film period or first, like, big film. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like maybe studio film. Maybe, maybe you're right, yeah, maybe first big film. But but yeah, and Carpenter would work with uh, Keith David again on They Live. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wilfred Brimley's in this, who some of you may recognize for commercials for the American Diabetes Association, or for the 
YouTube remix, diabetes remix. What? <laughs> Did you ever watch that? No, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's just what? like somebody did a compilation of him saying diabetes he pronounces it diabetes oh <laughs> like there's just a compilation on youtube of him saying that over and over again to some weird techno music wow. it's, it's amusing is that is that like clips of him from different movies saying that it's clips of him from the american diabetes association commercials oh, oh okay okay that's hilarious Nothing funny about diabetes, but this this uh, YouTube, <laughs> it, it'll give you a chuckle. All right. That's good. Yeah. Uh, there's a 2011 prequel also called The Thing. I've never seen that. It has a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Yeah. Maybe and, uh, maybe wait another 10, 15 years till people boost that up to 80%. Right. <laughs> That's going to be a classic in 2050. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um. And the novella, Who Goes There, it had been loosely adapted once before in a movie called The Thing from Another World from 1951, and they are watching that movie in Halloween. The characters watch that movie. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Good tie. Yeah. Um, You Um, haven't seen that one, have you? No, but I kind of, if I had all the time in the world, I would have loved to have read the novella, watched that film, Mm. and then watched this. Worked our way up to this film. Yeah. 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 Maybe one day we'll go back and review that film. That'd be fun. Sure, sure. Any other background info that I'm forgetting that you want to well, touch on? Well, I thought on? it was really interesting uh, that Toby Hooper uh, at one point was considered to direct this, but then was pulled off. Wasn't there another movie we just saw recently that Toby Hooper was... Uh, oh, Return of the Living Dead. Same thing, right? Oh, yeah. He was briefly attached to that. You're right. Yeah. Um, wow. For this one, I heard I read that Universal didn't like his pitch. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, that's disappointing. And, and then, um, I, yeah, there's so much. I mean, we were talking right before this call, just how much literature there is out there on the making of this film. Um, did you read about, like, I mean, it's interesting, the budget was so high, like $15 million, uh, pr- pretty big budget. But that was after they had to, like, cut out a lot of uh, scenes because uh, they were trying to save on costs, right? Yeah, they still had to do a lot of cost savings, so... Some scenes that I kind of feel really would have impacted the movie were were cut out, unfortunately. I know, Or just not filmed. You know, they were in the script and not filmed. Yeah, right, right, to try to trim down that budget. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if they were shot and cut, that's no budget savings, but they were were either not filmed at all or drastically changed. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised to read about some of those scenes because, yeah, it sounds like they would have been pretty impactful in the movie. Yeah, I agree. I also thought it's interesting to compare the budget number to Alien, which came out ooh, three, four years before this. Yeah, nineteen seventy-nine. Yeah, and what was that? That was like eleven million or so, and that made like a hundred some million in the box office. So like a, a way bigger, uh, a slightly smaller budget, like ten times the revenue almost. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that the success of that movie is part of what got this to come together. I think. They had been kicking this idea around at Universal since the mid-70s. And then after the success of Alien in 79 and John Carpenter's success with Halloween in 78, that's when everything started to come together with this right, movie. Right, right. So, yeah, so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not a box office flop. It made $19 million, but it, it was not what they were hoping for. Yeah, right, right. Oh, so you, you wouldn't call it like a, a box office failure? I would call it... A failure in that it probably didn't make its money back, but I wouldn't go as far as to say a flop. Okay. Because it's still, right. I mean, $19.6 million is a decent amount of money in 1982. Um, so so I think it's a hard time, hard to call that a flop, but it didn't make its money back and it didn't meet what they were expecting. So I sure. think in that sense, it's, it's a failure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Anything else you want to touch on in the background info of this movie before we start moving on? Oh, I also just thought it was funny that it was nominated for uh, a Razzie Award. That, <laughs> for the score, what? for the worst musical score. What? Oh, oh, I thought it was two. I thought it was the, the Razzie Award. Oh, oh, for the worst musical score. That's that's what it was for? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh okay, I thought it was on the movie. That makes sense. <laughs> All right. But yeah, that's yeah. that's silly. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah, a really so, good score. Yeah, I actually I like the score a lot. The the score is like pretty cool, and, you, and like I love like all the synthy stuff going on there. So that's 
interesting that it, that that would be the reaction. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I could think of another. Um, no, no knocks against it. I could think of other things I'd put before the score as a as a Razzie nominee. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. All right. Well, I'm going to move on to the Ohio connection. Unless you got anything else. No, let's do it. Um, but before I do that, a while back, listeners, we asked you to help us out and get out there on Apple Podcasts and give us some reviews and ratings because we were trying to get to 200 reviews by the end of 2021. And we found out there's some international reviews lurking out there that get us higher than we thought we were. And we are now only like seven or eight reviews away from getting 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Whoa, no kidding. Yeah, isn't that cool, man? That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So I would love to meet that goal by September 1st. I'm bumping up the deadline. So if any of you out there are listeners who listen on Apple Podcasts or you listen on something else, but you've got Apple Podcasts on your phone, pop into Apple Podcasts and just click on the stars, whatever stars you choose or write a review. Um, That would really help us out. And that's kind of a big milestone for us. So thank you very much to everyone who has reviewed us. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate all the feedback. Yeah, yeah, we we really appreciate every listener, even if you haven't reviewed us. Okay, and as always, our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're a listener in the Cleveland area, get out there while the weather's still nice, get out on the patio, drink a beer, eat some pierogi. Alex says John Carpenter's The Thing is a 1982 American science fiction horror film based on the 1938 John W. Campbell Jr. novella Who Goes There. There are countless casting what-ifs on this film, with dozens of popular actors of the time being considered for each part. The studio originally wanted to cast Nick Nolte, Christopher Walken, or Jeff Bridges to play lead character R.G. McCready, played famously by Kurt Russell. The role of Childs considered Ernie Hudson, Carl Weathers, Isaac Hayes, and Bernie Casey before ultimately going with Keith David. Casey, who passed away in 2017, was both an actor and an athlete, having broken several collegiate track and field records and ultimately winning a football small college national championship in 1959 at Bowling Green State University, located in Bowling Green, Ohio. Nice. Well sports done, reference. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice right. <laughs> we we would never be able to accomplish sports references. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, nicely done. Yeah, good thing he's here. Thanks, Alex. Okay, buddy, let's walk through the plot, plot. <laughs> both times. <laughs> I've got pot on the brain. Let's yeah. walk through the plot. We'll spoil some stuff. We'll review everything. So listeners, if you haven't seen it, this is the time to duck out. But Ashwin... I think I hear my wife calling me for some help. Do you mind if I just go check on that and you can hold on for a second and I'll be right back? Sure. Okay, man. I'll be right back. Thanks. All right. Okay, man, I'm back. Hey, everything okay? I think so. My wife thought she saw a spider in the bathroom, and she sent me in there after it. And once I got in there, I realized it was actually our two-year-old's head crawling around on spider legs. (laughs) Oh, man, what did you do? Did you have your flamethrower on you? I didn't have my flamethrower on me, and I didn't know if I could bear to do that. So I just locked it in the linen closet, and I'm going to figure out what to do about that in the morning. Sure. Yeah. Save it for tomorrow. Get a good night's sleep. I got to sleep on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite a conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> good night's sleep and some pot will help me figure out what to do. I think so. <laughs> that pot will pay off finally. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, come up with a plot on some pot. Nice. <laughs> All right. So this film opens with a helicopter flying over an Antarctic landscape and the helicopter is in pursuit of a dog. And a passenger inside the chopper is trying to shoot the dog with a rifle. The dog runs towards a U.S. research station. The helicopter lands and the passenger pursues the dog all the while shooting his rifle. And the Americans at this research station, not knowing what the hell is happening and seeing a man approaching shooting a rifle in their general direction, they shoot him. They shoot him dead. And the helicopter pilot 
blows up himself and the helicopter on accident with a grenade. So there's a big WTF moment with the guys at the U.S. research station. Um, they realize this was a Norwegian helicopter, and they decide to go check out the nearest Norwegian base to try to figure out what's going on here. At the Norwegian base, they discover it has been largely destroyed. There are corpses scattered about. They find the remains of a malformed human that has been mostly burned uh, that really piques their curiosity, and they bring it back to the U.S. research station so that their resident doctor or two can take a look at this and see what they make of it. Uh, Ashwin, what did you think of this opening here, and specifically when they're in the... uh, the Norway base finding everything in, in ruins and they find a corpse with that looks like it's killed itself with like frozen br- blood dripped that like frozen places it was dripping. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I love the setting, both like uh, of the Antarctic landscape, and I think they shot this part maybe in Alaska or somewhere. Um, and then also like the Norwegian base, it was like kind of creepy and cold, and there were like dead bodies there, uh, which which made it fr- really cool and like mysterious. So I I I thought it was all kind of intriguing. The helicopter scene with those guys coming in, I thought it was just kind of random at first. I didn't realize. I thought they were just kind of like randomly joyriding and chasing this dog down. So it, it was kind of a shock when they get out and they're like shooting at it and the guy just kind of gets killed right off the bat. Um, so yeah, just kind of a, a jarring and kind of creepy, ominous opening. But w- what did you think? I agree. Yeah. And I will echo your sentiments that I really liked the setting of this Norwegian base that was all ripped apart and frozen. It it did have a lot of alien vibes in terms of production design in the setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just in like, hey, they're ripping off alien, but they... They did a really good job. It just both of those movies are in that same space of like this cold, mm-hmm. chilling, like literally cold in this situation. Yeah. Um, just yeah, eerie setting. Eerie and like isolated. I feel like both both kind of plan a very like isolated setting of like you're these people in the middle of nowhere. There's like no help for like yeah miles uh, around. Yeah, here. yeah. It's almost like the sci-fi version of like an old eerie deserted haunted mansion or something like updated mm-hmm. for for the modern age um it's, it's it's a cool setting and i liked this image of the guy's blood frozen as it dripped to that the ground really, yeah that was really cool wasn't it yeah they do a great job of just conveying how cold everything is right yeah um yeah, this effective. movie was shot by a prolific cinematographer named dean cundy by the way and he he worked with carpenter on alien he shot a ton of other big name movies, including Jurassic Park, and I didn't write it down. I feel like he did Back to the Future too. Uh, he he worked with Ridley on Alien. Uh, no, he didn't work on Alien. He worked with. Oh, sorry, I probably misspoke. Um, I'll blame the pot. He worked with Carpenter on Halloween. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, cool. Um, and they take this thing back to their their station, and the doctor is like pulling the organs out of it. Um, he determined it is or was human. Um, meanwhile, they've taken in this sled dog, and we see a scene of it transforming and overtaking the other dogs in the kennel with all sorts of weird tentacles and spider legs and whatnot. Um, and what did you think of this scene? This seems to be the first real showcase of the plas- practical effects. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I thought the creature they found uh, at the Norwegian site was like pretty horrific looking, and they were like slowly revealing that. And then this scene kind of like took the next step of like showing a live uh, version of the thing, and uh, it was cool to like I, I don't know I feel like every ca- camera angle maybe like caught like a different part of it, so it's hard to get a sense of like the full uh, visual of, of what was happening. I, I don't know if that was purposeful or, or bad editing, but what you could see was pretty cool with like the tentacles flying and uh, like, yeah, things coming out of it and attacking the other dogs. Did, did you get a sense of like, it was hard to understand fully like what it looked like? Um, I didn't get that sense actually. I, I feel kind of the opposite. I feel like they did a good job letting you know what was happening without showing too much. Um, I do have some complaints with the editing in this movie, but not specifically in these scenes. Okay. So you felt like uh, you knew like what the thing looked like when it was coming out of the dog? I mean, as much as I was supposed to, I feel like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was some debate early on in the movie too, whether the, the thing has a specific appearance or is it always just morphing into something new and weird? Right, right. 
Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in this scene, does a part of the thing kind of escape uh, through the ceiling? Um, good question. I, I guess I did have sometimes a hard time telling exactly what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, maybe that's to give the impression like uh, there's a, a lot going on here. Yeah, um, yeah. To me, it added to the chaos. Um, yep. And Kundi, the director of photography, I never know if he pronounces it Kundi or Kundi, but he talked about the balance of trying to really showcase Rob Bottin's creations, but not so much that it's going to call attention to the fact that they're fake. Like, Oh, yeah. Um, but I think everything looked really good. And you made a good point, too, about we start with the static special effect of this weird thing that they find at the Norwegian base, and then we move to something that we actually get to see in motion. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Hey, yeah. w- one uh, random thing uh, before we move forward. The, the first scene of this film, isn't it uh, a spaceship flying through space? that uh gets like it that encounters earth basically you're right thanks for calling me out yeah before the the helicopter and the dog chase we see uh, an animated scene of a spaceship penetrating earth's atmosphere did this look familiar to you this this opening <laughs> yeah it did what what's the, that so f- predator wasn't that the exact oh opening my gosh predator? yeah yeah <laughs> But that, that was that was like I don't know, eight nine years later or maybe seven years later or something. But yeah, yeah, wow, they are very similar. Yeah, yeah, like a spaceship flying towards Earth. Is it funny? Yeah, something about that seemed familiar to me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. That's that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the crew realizes something's going on in the kennel. They encounter this weird monster and destroy it with a flamethrower. And an autopsy of this dog slash creature reveals that it's a being that can perfectly imitate other creatures. Uh, It's pretty impressive that the doctor could gather that from a random autopsy of some unknowable creature, but that is what he discovers. Um, And some of the documents that they recovered at the Norwegian base point them to a dig site where they go and they discover the dug up remains of an alien spaceship. So... It becomes clear at this point that they're dealing with some sort of alien life form who can kind of assimilate to other beings at a cellular level and uh, disguise itself in a way. And this is kind of where things start to take a turn and the movie picks up the pace a little bit and paranoia starts to set in as they all start to realize that this thing could be any one of them or sneak into any one of them and they wouldn't necessarily know it. Did, uh, did the sense of paranoia uh, slipping in? I, I feel like there's one character that particularly like embodies it, but do you feel like uh, we're prepared for it or did it kind of come out of nowhere? I think they could have done a better job slowly ramping up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really felt like the movie just really shifted tone pretty drastically at the hour mark or what did you think did you think it was a little drastic yeah yeah i thought i thought like suddenly like that uh realizations there that oh it could be any one of us and now uh everyone like kind of starts freaking out and getting suspicious of each other but uh i i'm not sure what like the critical element was that switched uh like what, what was the point in this film when that suddenly becomes known and that gravity is understood uh was there a clear mark for you when that happened I think it is, so at first, Dr. Blair realizes it before anybody. Um, He's the one doing the autopsies and researching and getting his little uh, typical 80s, 70s, 80s movies computer (laughs) models together that (laughs) calculate the probability perfectly for him, um, (laughs) that there's a 75% likelihood that the crew could be infected and the whole planet could be affected in about three years. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was kind of like the oh shit moment. For him, it was, and then he destroys every manner of outside communication or escape so that none of them can get to civilization. Mm-hmm. So when the crew discovers this, I think they're just like, okay, Blair's gone nuts. Um, but then I think it's once Benning's turns um, that they start to really, it starts to dawn on them that they may not know who is the thing. Um, sure. But- and... I hear what you're... 
I mean, on one level, it's like, well, of course, they're not going to be paranoid until they have the information that lets them know, okay, it's time to be paranoid. But I kind of hear what you're saying. I think the movie in its tone and pacing made this become a little bit of an abrupt shift. Yeah, yeah. And it, like Bennings, uh, I, I know we'll talk about that, but, uh, you know, if, if I was there, you know, I, I heard this doctor say that and, you know, they all they all kind of write him off to be kind of crazy. So they, they lock him up. Then Bennings turns, but Bennings, like it, it, it seemed like really clear how he turned. So uh, I, I was just surprised that like they all bought into that that idea of paranoia so quickly. Gotcha, gotcha. How did he turn again? Isn't he in the room with like the dead body and the dead body like a tentacle like comes out from it and grabs him? Oh, okay, that might be true. I started I, to lose track of who changed and when. Yeah, yeah. I think he gets attacked by the dead body, and he's like the the first person that we see uh he's the first person right yeah and there's a great scene of him kneeling in the snow um he like kind of wanders out there on his own and they're like hey what's wrong with him and they catch up with him and he's kneeling in the snow and he's got these instead of hands he's got these claws and he's letting out this ungodly shriek like inhuman shriek with a blank look on his face yeah um and it's kind of a cool moment and they they have to torch him yeah. Um and it's a really well shot scene. It's a really atmospheric scene. It's a really important scene to the plot. But I kind of felt like it was a little clunky. They didn't hang on it for quite long enough and they mm-hmm. cut away to it to just a random scene of like McCready like walking into a supply room or something. Oh, like right after. Yeah, did that strike you or do you not remember that part? Um, no, I mean, I, I do feel like it was, it was kind of rushed. Like this is the first person you're seeing turn into the thing. And, uh, you think they would have like kind of drawn this out a little bit more. Um, especially like, since this is probably someone they knew and trusted pretty well. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the way, how quickly they cut from it, maybe downplayed some of the, uh, emphasis it could have had. Yeah, I agree. And we didn't really know much about Bennings. Um, I think it could have, they could have done a lot more with the story and the characters to make that a more impactful death. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There is, they try to do that a little bit. The captain approaches McCready and he's like, I've known him for 10 years. He's my friend. Um, yeah. And Mac doesn't even acknowledge it. It just walks away. <laughs> so yeah. that was a really cool scene, but I wish it could have been honored and played up even more. Sure. This was one I think they had to cut the budget for, right? Was it? Okay, I, I lost track of some of the things they cut the budget for. Yeah, I thought they had like bigger plans for this scene, but then like, uh, you know, when they were trying to figure out ways to cost cut, this was one of them. Okay, okay. My only note for improvement would just have been like, hang on that shot a little bit longer, maybe get some close-ups of the crew reacting to it, Yeah. and then more gently transition into a Mac walking into the <laughs> locker room. Either more yeah. gently or more abruptly to like... Sure. To trans, you could do a starker transition there to emphasize McCready's like coldness and logic, and just like, well, I've got to do what I got to do now. Or you could make it gentler to ease away from the the sadness of them losing a crew member. Right, right. Yeah, I think that would have added some emotional weight. Yeah, I don't know why I'm digging into this one edit so deeply, <laughs> but it, it really bothered me for some reason. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, so things start to happen. More of the crew members get lost. Various things happen to make them all more paranoid. Um, they start to discover that people have to kind of shed their clothing as the thing overtakes them. And somebody finds McCready's jacket somewhere and you don't quite know if it's really McCready that put it there or if he's being framed. Um, there are various things that happen to make them suspect other characters they start to get more paranoid and a pivotal moment happens during one of the encounters. A crew member suffers a heart attack. One of the doctors in the crew tries to defibrillate him and his torso <laughs> opens up and bites the doctor's arms off. Um, they then torch the torso, um, the, the corpse, I guess that just ate this dude. Um, but its head detaches and escapes scuttles off and eventually sprouts spider legs and is, scuttling about the room before it is destroyed this scene especially i had a note that just says these special effects my god how could you do better yeah <laughs> I, know. I, I was in awe 
of the special effects, especially in this scene. Yeah, yeah, this is so cool. They did it. They did a great job on this one. And then, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like with the, each uh, time you're seeing the thing, like just the effects keep getting better and better, and they show more and more like crazy shit, and it, it all looks like so good. Yeah, it seems like they just keep topping themselves in a way. I mean, I would call this the highlight of the special effects, but um, yeah, it, it keeps escalating in terms of the bonkers stuff that you see on screen and how good the effects look. Yeah. Yep. Did you? Uh, d- Oh, did you enjoy the fact that they, like, the go-to weapon here, like, and throughout the film are, are just, like, flamethrowers? I did. Flamethrowers are just so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> such, an, such a great weapon to, like, have on hand as needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get a uh, quintessential quote from this movie. They turn around and say, you've got to be fucking kidding when they see this head scuttling about the floor on spider legs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, something you mentioned uh, around, you know, the, them finding like pieces of garments uh, or clothes that had like, you know, were kind of ripped up and assuming that that ties to um, the thing. How how do you think they put that together? That that like, I mean, as, as viewers, you kind of know, like, oh, that looks kind of ominous. But how do you know, like someone in the movie, like, in, yeah, how do the characters know when they find a piece of clothing with holes in it that that means that's the monster? I can't remember exactly how they pieced it all together. It started when Nalls, the cook, found underwear, like somebody's long johns that were kind of ripped apart in the trash can in the kitchen. Yeah. But um, what, what made them suspicious of it and like start to think that that's a sign of the thing? I think maybe they ended up putting together that the long johns belonged to, maybe was it Bennings or something? They... they and maybe after seeing enough turns, they realized, okay, this thing kind of like rips you apart when it assimilates. Um, oh, okay. So I don't know. There, there were a couple of things that I didn't quite wrap my head around. I couldn't tell if it was the movie's fault or my fault. Yeah. Okay. Um, so McCready, the main character here, played by Kurt Russell, decides that the best way to figure out who is the thing is to tie everybody up draw their blood and see if their blood reacts to the heat of a hot needle because that whole head scuttling about the floor makes them realize that every single body part is alive in some way. Like each of the cells is alive. It can split off and it doesn't need to be a hole to be alive. Um, And this from here on ensues after the scene that includes like the best special effects of the movie, this is probably the most tense scene in the movie everybody is paranoid they're tied to a chair they're watching McCready test their blood and they don't you can't tell if they're not entirely sure like that maybe they're the thing and they don't know it or if they're like oh shit I'm the thing and here he's gonna find out yeah um did did you ever get a sense I I, I know maybe later on we see more but at this point you don't know if people are like aware of the thing right I, yeah, I didn't quite know if people would be aware that they were the thing or they weren't. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think in the end, I read something that made it seem like people wouldn't even know if they were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of lines with like what we're seeing so far. Yeah. Um, everybody passes the test except for one character named Palmer. And once he's exposed because his blood is like screeching, um, and trying to go away from the needle, he transforms into the thing. Another great practical effects thing. He like launches up towards the ceiling. He inf- infects another character, and Nakrity is forced to torch them both. Um, and I think this scene really encapsulates the paranoia that everybody talks about when they talk about the theme of this movie and what makes this movie special. I think it could all really be boiled down to this blood scene. Oh, the, the, this like really tense scene of uh, him testing the blood and everyone kind of like being on edge. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the scene was kind of a highlight, and you get really that personal dynamic of like uh, just how scared everyone is, and you, you kind of feel that fear of like, am I it or am I not it? And like, uh, you, you suspecting everyone, but everyone kind of suspecting, uh, or yeah, just not knowing, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of a it messes with uh, your head a bit. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, so after this, um, they haven't tested Blair because he's out, that they, they've locked him in this shed or whatever. So a group of guys go out to find him, and they discover that he's been building some sort of like flying saucer to plan his escape. Uh, they eventually encounter him, and he's turned into, into the thing. 
he tries to stop their plan, which is now to just explode the entire station in an effort to kill the thing. Um, McCready manages to still get the explosives to detonate using dynamite. Uh, and at the end of the film, it's only him and Childs. A couple of the other characters have died off or disappeared, which we'll talk about at the end here. Um, and it's only him and Childs, played by Keith David. And they're just kind of left to presumably freeze to get to death together um, outside in the snow as the station kind of burns around them. And as the audience, we're not really knowing if either one of them is the thing, if they're going to turn, or if they'll both just freeze to death out here, or if the thing will ever make its way to civilization. Mm. Um, and this is pretty much the end. It, it was called very nihilistic at the time, and, and even now, um, I think some people had problems with it, but what do you think of it? I, I love the end. That's like one of my favorite parts of this film. I, I just love how it's like these two characters who I think we saw them uh, being very uh, hostile with each other early in the film. And right. you can it, it kind of ends with them. Like they both aren't trusting each other, but they just like, what, what's the line they say at the end? Like, we're just going to sit this one out or something. Or like, we'll just wait here and see what happens or something. Yeah. He says, well, why don't we just wait here for a while? See what yeah. happens. And yeah. they're, it's really cool because they're that hostility still exists, but they're both so tired and cold that they they don't there's not much energy behind it so one of them says if we've got any surprises for each other i don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it right right um and so yeah then why don't we just wait here for a while see what happens yeah (laughs) he says it so casually like let's just wait and see what happens where it's clear like they're either both going to freeze to death or one of them's going to turn and kill the other um and they're kind of passing a bottle of whiskey back and forth and that's how the movie ends. Were you, were you surprised uh, by the ending, or what, what was your reaction? I agree with you. I really like the ending. I don't really know of a better way to end a movie like this unless you want to make it a triumphant defeat of the thing. But the thing was so confusing the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. good or, for good or bad, but none of the characters ever knew what was the thing or how to discover <laughs> who was the thing. So it wouldn't yeah. really make sense to know that you got it once and for all. Right. Um, yeah. And we also know that it's alive even in like a small severed body part. So right. who knows that there's like a thousand things that are going to escape from this burning station anyway. So mm-hmm. um, I, I thought it was a very fitting ending. I don't really know of a other of another way that would even make sense to end it. Sure. Yeah, that, you bring a really good point. I, I think that's what I struggled with most of the film is I never really understood the rules of the thing um, like people don't know they, they, if, if they are the thing, uh, except I, I think that doctor at the end, he was like the only person I saw, which like was acting in the best interest of the thing by like stopping the place from blowing up. But then why was he sabotaging it earlier? Um, so yeah, and then I didn't understand like the, these two characters that we're ending with at the end, we know they both have done the blood test and they weren't the thing, but, uh, I, I mean like, shouldn't, shouldn't it be fine then? Or is it possible that they got the thing between that time or something? Like, were you clear on any of those kind of aspects of it? I it was unclear, um, and I think in both good ways and bad, um, because it is nice to know what's going on when you watch a movie, <laughs> the rules of the game. Yeah, but in some ways, not quite knowing the rules could add to your paranoia as the audience as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I kind of took it that. McCready or Childs could have been, could have become the thing somewhere along the way here. And Childs especially was off camera for a little while mm-hmm. in the final sequence. Sure. So even though they tested, their blood tested fine, you don't really know what happened in between that time and this time. And yeah, Blair was acting in the interest, acting against the thing earlier. And mm-hmm. then he clearly becomes the thing and you don't really see how from what i remember right because he, he's isolated so i didn't really understand how he became the thing yeah so i think it, it can be frustrating um because you're not really sure what's happening and why and well yeah just to repeat what i said it's good in some ways but but not great in others yeah yeah um nulls nulls just disappears in the final sequence and that is a victim of budget limitations there was a scene written for him where he becomes the thing uh but they just cut that out 
completely. They never shot it, and he just oh. disappears without um, any honor really paid to his character. It's pretty unfortunate. That's interesting. That that final thing that uh, McCready is battling, I assumed like Knowles had been killed by it, and was like that. That final thing was like uh, an aggregation of the Doctor, the Captain, and uh, Knowles. But that, yeah. that wasn't the case. That actually may have been true. I can't remember exactly how Nall's scene was supposed to uh, plan out, pan yeah. out. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I assumed too. But we never really saw what happened. Right. Yeah. He just um, kind of wanted. Actually, off. I, now I'm realizing I have a note. He was scripted to appear in the finale as a partly assimilated mass of tentacles. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was supposed to have a confrontation with a creature dubbed the Box Thing. Hmm. Okay. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I don't know exactly what, what would have happened there, but uh, yeah, instead he's just gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's disappointing. A bummer. Yeah. Um. Well, it sounds like one of your cons is a general state of confusion to a detriment. What are some other things that you liked or didn't like about this? Uh, well, yeah, as we talked about, like, I think the setting is great. I think that theme you're talking about around paranoia is, is amazing. But uh, the, the transition to that state, I feel like, could have been amplified a bit more, seemed more logical in terms of how it was brought on to these characters. Um, that, that scene where they're doing the blood uh, stuff, I, I think, is, is like the best scene. I wanted, It would have been great to see more tense moments like that. Otherwise, it was just kind of hard to follow the, the rules of like what was going on and like who was the thing and uh, if you are the thing and you don't know you're the thing are you like evil or are you just uh something like a sleeper cell kind of thing where you might can suddenly turn into this thing at, at any given moment so it was just kind of hard to track the 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 menace in this but um yeah I, the other thing I, I i wish there was a little bit more in terms of uh character development i mean McReady, like we get to know, is like a pretty pragmatic, uh, pretty cold, like not a lot of like emotional stuff going on. He's not afraid to like hold his crew hostage or whatever, and he's just trying to survive. But um, I didn't feel like there was much in the way of the other characters. Did, did that bother you at all? Yeah, it did. And even McCready, like he's the most fleshed out, but really not so much. Um, and there's 12 characters. Um, Gosh, the short story had 37, so Lancaster cut it down to 12. Um, it was still hard to to follow and, and get attached to characters at 12. But that is my chief complaint, is the character development. Uh, we don't know anybody well, and it really would have made it more impactful when people died, especially that first Benning's death, if we knew anything about him. Like, who was he close to, the crew, and like, we could have seen a touching moment between him and the crew or him thinking about his family or right you know anything like when people who love this movie may be like hey like it's not a disney film but to me that's <laughs> just basic storytelling i wish we would have gotten that i think so um, yeah especially if, if you're saying like the main theme is around like paranoia paranoia and distrust i think if you have like a little bit more in terms of relationships between the characters then uh, that would highlight that uh, transition of, of feelings from this is like my crew member or someone I've been living here with, and now like suddenly I, I don't trust them anymore. Where I, I don't I don't feel like we had that initial build into the relationships. Yeah, man, I have almost that exact same note. Like the paranoia would have been amplified if we had known these if they had had relationships and we got to see people who were truly close to each other not know how to interact with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, that's just like such a, it seems like such an obvious thing that, that should have been included that really would have amped up the paranoia because people talk and talk about that paranoia. It is a definite theme and it's part of what makes this movie special, but I don't think it was really played up to its full potential. And the only time to me that it really got to shine was in the blood scene mm -hmm. and, and thereafter, especially at the end with Childs and, uh, McCready kind of freezing to death and talking to each other, having yeah. a, a confrontation. But um, yep. yeah, I, I I still think they that the paranoia themes worked, but I feels like there were some definite missed opportunities that some character development really would have not only would have created a better story, but it really would have done the paranoia themes some favors. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would have been great. How, how do you feel about the ambiguity around the rules around the thing? Uh, did that bother you? I think the um, 
I didn't think that much about that while I was watching, but then going back and trying to piece this plot together for this episode, I was like, man, do I even understand what the hell was happening? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that's another downside as well. I, I think it was perhaps too ill-defined, mm-hmm. but I, I can't decide. I can't decide if that's just completely on me or if some of that's on the movie. I know. I'm, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm in the gray area. It reminds me a lot of like uh, this environment we're in with like COVID and stuff where like people think you know how you get it, but there are all these like surprise cases that happen all the time. And you're, you're just wondering, well, how did someone get it? You know, and it's, it's kind of like maybe this is like a more realistic kind of portrayal of uh, how this thing is being spread where you just you think, you know, but you don't know. And you have to like live in that ambiguity. But yeah. uh you know. know what I think would have really served the movie would be to have a scene where the characters have a similar discussion, like where they're like, how the fuck are we even supposed to know what's happening here? Oh, yeah. Right. Like if a character could have just said that and, and vented <laughs> our frustrations, I think it would have uh, really put our minds at ease. Like, okay, yeah. no one, nobody knows. Um, I mean, we know the characters don't know, but I think on some level it would have helped us to to get that frustration vented by a character in some dialogue. Yeah, you think that would have been like a natural dialogue point, like, uh, holy shit, what's going on? Like, how do we prevent this from happening? What is, like, how's this thing spreading? What can we do? That kind of thing. Yeah, and I I was actually just thinking about COVID even before you brought it up because the distrust and and the not knowing who to trust or how to interact around these people, on some level with COVID, it's easier with people that you're not really close with, right? (laughs) I, I think one of the hardest parts of this has been people handling it totally different ways and the people that you're close to you don't know how to pursue your relationship with them anymore because it's like hey you really want to do this stuff but i'm not comfortable (laughs) doing that stuff and it would be way easier if you were a stranger like sure yeah i would just wear a mask but now i we have to have all these awkward conversations and um yeah this obviously i can't pin anything about covid on this movie from (laughs) uh 40 years ago but I think that that is just echoing how the distrust can be even more impactful when it's someone you you really trusted previously, and now right. you have a reason to not trust them. Right? Yeah, yeah, that totally plays into that uh, dynamic. And yeah. and like here here's a group of people who've just like been with each other for like who knows how long. So I imagine those would have been like pretty strong relationships. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were very simple things that could have been done to to build some relationships and. Uh, missed opportunities there yeah but not to harp on the negative for too long what are some of your favorite things about it oh man i mean obviously i think the special effects were were the highlight for me like those this looked amazing for 1982 and even now i feel like it holds up and every uh iteration of the thing was so creative and different than what we had seen and i did feel like like they kept kind of amping it up and up and it it would it would hold up each time uh what, what did you think agree man i was even when you hear the effects hyped up in this movie and you have your hopes high, it doesn't disappoint. It's yeah. incredible special effects. Reading some of the background on the movie, I'm really glad they didn't choose to go with a more structured, consistent appearance for the thing. I love that you never really knew what it was going to look like or what was going to happen. Yeah, um, I was in awe of the effects and how long it must have taken to do some of that stuff mm-hmm. and how good it looks so long after. Like Effects have never looked better. I know, I know. It's, it really um, shows in this. Yeah, but, it was cool. And it was just kind of bonkers, the stuff that happened on screen. It wasn't just like you're seeing a cool monster. It's like spurting and scurrying and tentacles and whips yeah. splashing everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it was cool. The The action and the sequences with the thing in it, I think, were, were shot and edited pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Those were really cool. And then, yeah, yeah, I think we talked about like the, the reliance of flamethrowers. Like, that was just such a great visual to add to like the cinematography and the, the, the monsters. And I feel like it gave the movie a lot of interesting character that like every time there's a threat, you bust out a flamethrower and that's your uh, way to solve yeah. it. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the cinematography and the flamethrowers like in the same sentence because the lighting in this movie was really kind of unique. It was a really dark set, but at the same time you could see really well and it had this weird blue glow that you get when it's really snowy um, and nighttime where you can surprisingly see pretty well. Um, and some of the stuff that was actually in the movie, like practical and dynamic lighting, like the, the flamethrowers are kind of lighting the scene in some ways. Um, it just really added to the mood. Like 
I thought the cinematography was really cool. It was like a really chilly blue, dark, um, mysterious vibe, but it, it didn't seem too forced or stylized. It felt really natural. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It all kind of fit together very well. And it, yeah, that's really interesting contrast between the flamethrower, the the icy blueness, and then they all they would always have like these flares with them too sometimes. So I, I think they kind of played with that visual of like fire against like such a cold background. Yeah, we. I feel like we've seen so many movies lately that really hit up the blues and the pinks, like mm-hmm. in the same shot. Like I'm thinking of Mandy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but normally it's so highly stylized and um, looks yeah. very. You know, it looks like something that's very procured and and may even be done in post production to an extent. But this just kind of achieved some of that same look, but very naturally. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, you like the the music score? I did. <laughs> I did like the music score. <laughs> You're on board with that jam? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the visual sights as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, how, how about the performances of the uh, cast? I think they were great performances. I think. Uh, the character stuff, some of the dialogue was really cool. Like, and there are lines that really stand out from this movie. Um, like, trust is hard to come, a hard thing to come by these days. Um, but the, the the interactions and um, the relationships, all this to say, I think the performances were good, even if they didn't always have the best material. Yeah, I, f- I, f- I feel the same. Like, uh, they. They they were they, they seem really real uh, and yeah I would have liked to see a little more like uh, interesting dialogue between them which I, I feel like they didn't have in the script unfortunately but yeah I, I thought everyone kind of performed pretty well yeah agreed um, all right man well let's see zero to five flamethrower I can't decide whether to go with tentacles or flamethrowers so I'll go with flamethrowers zero to five flamethrowers where do you give this. Uh, so I gave it three flamethrowers. I, mean, I thought it was a great watch and a lot of fun, but I, some of that character development and the uh, unknown of the 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 thing uh, kind of bothered me a little bit. So uh, f- fun watch, three three flamethrowers. How about you? Your tone shift was as abrupt as you're saying the the tone shift was to paranoia in the second half of this oh, movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> you <know>. just like <laughs> down. You found out somebody died over there. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah yeah no, i know i really want to give this higher but um I, i'm guessing in like 10 15 years i'll give this a five but what, what do you think yeah man i uh i'm kind of there with you but i give it a 3.5 sure um and there was a while there where i thought i was going to give it a four but i i think the character and i mean regular listeners are probably getting to know my reviewing by now and realizing that i really like there to be a, a main character a clear main character with all the boxes checked in terms of what you can do to develop a character. Um, so that's partially just my style, but I really think the movie would have been better had there been better characterizations. Um, but I loved so much about it. So 3.5, again, upon rewatch, I could see it going up a little bit. Okay, cool. I also thought the beginning of the movie was a little bit slow sometimes, but... uh Oh, yeah. really? I thought they like jumped right into the action. I, I thought it, it would have been nice if they had slowed down a bit and built up, uh, taking that time to build up, uh, you know, the setting more and the characters a bit more. But it's like they jumped straight into the plot. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe it was just maybe what I'm trying to get out is some of that uh, abruptness of the tone shift as well. I guess I wish it would have uh, felt a little bit more impactful sooner. It was just kind of events on the screen for oh, the first yeah. hour and. And the stakes started to feel a little higher after that. It does, yeah. The beginning is kind of like just like at one tone a little bit. It's like, it's like they're like in discovery mode, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. Discovery mode's a good, good place to put it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that just goes on for like an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then paranoia. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, cool, man. Anything else? Uh, no, that's all I got. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the show, uh, go ahead and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Help us get to that 200 reviews goal. If you want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com, click on the social links drop down, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. That's where we announce what we're going to do next week on next week's episode. You can also find a link there for our Discord server where we're hanging out and just chatting with other movie fans and listeners to the show. So, If you feel like you don't have enough horror movie friends in real life and you want to make some internet horror movie friends, join our Discord server. 
Uh, or if you just want to drop us a comment but don't do social media, there's a, um, there's a contact form on our website, horrormovieclub.com as well. And while you're at horrormovieclub.com, you can click on the big orange button that says Patreon to get access to our bonus content for a buck a month. We've got eight or so episodes out there now. Um, our logo's done by Amy Mae Popart. You can check her out on Etsy.com. Uh, she's also got a coaster set that features our logo. If you go to Amy Mae Popart on Etsy.com and search Horror Movie Club, that coaster set will pop up. You can use the code Movie Club, all caps, to get 20% off on that. I think that's everything I have to say. So until next time, if you're thinking of buying a purebred dog traditionally used to pull sleds, maybe like an Alaskan Husky or something like that. Instead, save some money, go down to your local shelter, and set every dog in that place on fire. <laughs> Do the world a favor. <laughs> uh, man, Winnie's going to be upset. <laughs> she's, she's not going to be happy after that. Yeah.